From its very beginning, the Church of Christ ran into trouble in the world, where it was everywhere regarded as an intruder against the rights and prerogatives of established and going concerns. His doctrine collided with philosophy. Its offices and priesthood aroused the suspicion of governors and politicians. Its divine gifts and powers scandalized the schoolmen, Jewish and Greek alike. The inspired preaching of the world had to settle the score with rhetoric, as its revelation did with the great heritage of mysticism. We have touched upon all these things in preceding talks, but there's one important phase of the story we've not mentioned. God is a God of miracles. Everything he does is marvelous, and in the end surpasses the understanding of men. As the gospel, with all its gifts and powers, was introduced into a world of philosophy, mysticism, and rhetoric, all of which were hostile to it, so too it was introduced into a world of miracles. And just as it is important to distinguish between the gospel and philosophy, between spirit and rhetoric, between revelation and mysticism, so it's necessary to distinguish sharply between the kind of miracles that were found among the saints and the kind that enjoyed currency and popularity in the outside world. For here, too, we have a sure key to the presence of God's church and his prophets in the world. Among the early Christians, miracles were a common and a useful thing. It's no contradiction of terms, as later Christians like Chrysostom claimed, to speak of common miracles. In the restored church of today, the sick are healed every day, but for all its frequency, that occurrence loses none of its miraculous quality and fills the beholder with joy and thanksgiving. We are told in emphatic terms in the scripture that the Lord and the apostles performed very many miracles during their short ministries on earth. In their day, miracles were a daily event. More than 40 specific miracles are attributed to Christ alone in the New Testament. And on one occasion, we are told, a great multitude of people went out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Here was no concern lest the spectacle value of miracles be diminished by making them overcommon, for the ancient saints did not value miracles for their spectacular qualities at all. For them, they were a supremely useful gift of God to those who believed, and emphatically not a means of, of impressing the opposition. And these signs shall follow them that believe, says the Lord at the end of the Gospel of Mark. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. <clears throat> In the very last verse of the gospel we read, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. The signs follow the word, they do not precede it. These signs shall follow them that believe, and note just what these signs are. They are the, they are the intervention of the power of God, in situations in which men need help very badly and can't help themselves, when they are possessed, when they are poisoned and sick. In the days when the church had to bear witness within a short time to very many people, the language barrier was an insurmountable one, so the Lord gave them power to speak with new tongues, as is plainly seen in the day of Pentecost, when every man heard the gospel preached in his own tongue. And Paul tells us in Acts that this particular gift is specifically for a sign to them that believe not. 
signs for the preaching of the gospel in new tongues. But what about the other signs? They are not for unbelievers. The pagan world of the time was, as we have said, a world of miracles and miracle lovers. Those popular miracles were of the type calculated to excite awe in all beholders and stir up general public interest. Of this type of miracle, the Lord strongly disapproved. Not only did he repeatedly instruct those who had been the beneficiaries of his miraculous powers not to spread the news abroad, but in every instance where he is asked for a sign, he rebukes the askers and quickly withdraws from the scene. Father Gariou Lagrange, in his recent treatment of the subject, explains that the powerful rebukes administered by the Lord to those who seek signs apply only to the Pharisees, who, he says, were always seeking new signs after they'd had plenty of other ones from the Lord. But we also read that when the people were gathered together, the multitude were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation, they seek a sign. You see, he's speaking to the whole multitude, and he condemns the whole sign-seeking generation. The Lord says those who seek a sign will receive a sign, but it is not the sign they want. It is the sign of Jonah. When the Pharisees asked him for a sign, he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall be no sign given to this generation. And he left them. And yet there were signs all around them, but only those who believed could see them. The signs only follow them that believe. O ye hypocrites, said the Lord to the Pharisees and Sadducees, asking him for a sign from heaven. He said, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Whenever people ask the Lord for a sign, he walks out on them, telling them that those who ask for a sign to them, no sign shall be given, save one they don't want. In other passages cited by Lagrange, we read in Acts, And the believers were more added to the Lord, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets to be healed, and so forth. That's the apostles. Here they bring out the sick inasmuch as they believe. They believe first, and the miracles follow. Does not the Lord, in preparation for a miracle, often ask the recipient whether or not he or she believes as a prerequisite to the miracle? In his own native district, the Lord, we are told by Matthew, did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. If the purpose of miracles was to convince the unbelieving, this should have been the very place where the Lord would perform his greatest ones. But the rule is very clear. No belief, no miracles. Ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith, as we read in the twelfth chapter of Ether, a long discussion on that theme. Well, in the King James Bible, the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians has the heading on it, Paul's visions or apostolic credentials. But Paul never reveals the content of those visions, least of all to unbelievers. What he does in this chapter is to remind the Corinthians, truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. But that was after the Corinthians were converted, given to them as Christians. Not as pagans, but even these signs didn't guarantee a lasting conversion, for Paul goes on to describe how the Corinthians are all falling away. Credentials must be infallible, as the word of the Lord is infallible, but miracles employed for purposes of demonstration never can be, for miracles are not exclusively Christian. One need only recall the vast miracle literature of the Mohammedans. When the question was brought up at an early council in Antioch, how does it happen that the heretics often perform miracles? The answer was rather significant. It, it is not proper, came the reply, to inquire into such a matter. The question could not be answered by men who believed that miracles were sure credentials, because there were plenty of miracles performed by heretics. Like philosophy and mysticism, miracles, real miracles, are found throughout the whole world. 
They're used by practitioners of religion everywhere to bediz and amaze and convince the doubters. There shall arise false Christs, says the Lord, and false prophets, and they shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if possible, they shall deceive the very elect. See who uses the signs and wonders for that purpose. In this passage, the Lord goes on to explain that a time is coming when many shall claim that Christ is with them. But none, not a single one of them, should be believed because they would try to convert by signs and wonders. In Mark, uh, the same thing reads, And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall arise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Here we play, see plainly enough who it is who employs signs and wonders to convert the unbelieving, whose coming, says Paul, is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. It doesn't say false wonders. It says wonders that deceive, wonders of a lie. What should people seek then? <clears throat> they should seek the word of life. After declaring an evil and adulterous generation seeketh a sign, the Lord explains that the people of Nineveh would condemn such a generation in judgment because the preaching of the prophet, he said, had been enough to convince them, and that the queen of Sheba would judge them likewise, since she was satisfied not with a sign, but with the wise words of Solomon. In the last verse of Mark, we read, as we've mentioned, they went forth and preached, confirming the word with signs following. To prove that miracles were meant to convert, Lagrange cites John 2 and 11. This is the beginning of miracles, of the miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. His disciples, not the whole multitude. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, says John. Well, next Lagrange cites John 12 and 20, 10 and 24. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not. Because ye are not of my sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Our author, the man we've been following along here, could not have picked a better passage to demonstrate that miracles do not convert the unbelievers. But ye believe not. Well, who does believe? Those, say the, says the Lord, who hear his voice, for whom his words are enough. When the Lord granted signs and wonders to be done by the hands of the apostles in Iconium, the result was that they got kicked out of town. The miracles didn't break down the opposition. Then there's the famous case of Nicodemus, who came to the Lord by night and said, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. But this was not the way the Lord wanted Nicodemus converted. In answer, he didn't praise those who believed in miracles, but rebuked those who wouldn't believe on his words. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he says, we speak what we do know and testify what we've seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? To impress people with miracles is one thing, to give them a testimony of the gospel another. As the experience of the apostles showed, if people will not accept the gospel by the word without miracles, they will not accept it with miracles. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead, says the Lord. After the first century, miracles ceased entirely from the church. It's a remarkable thing. This has been a much-discussed phenomenon. We've touched on it in these talks and quoted Bishop John of Bristol's statement, I perceive in the language of the fathers who lived in the middle and end of the second century, if not a conviction, at least a suspicion, that the power of working miracles was withdrawn, combined with an anxiety to keep up a belief of its continuance in the church. 
This can be illustrated by the instance of the thundering legion. When a Roman army was delivered from death by thirst by a timely shower of rain during an expedition in Germany, everybody rushed to claim the miracle for his church. Devotees of Isis claimed that rain was sent in answer to the prayers of the Egyptian priest Arnufius, who was with the army. On the Antonine column, we still see the miracle cited in support of the Roman state religion and attributed to the intervention of Jupiter Pluvius, from whose outspread arms the shower pours down. Tertullian, however, attributes the miracles to the prayers of the Christians who were with the army. For Bishop John, this eager exploitation of a mere coincidence so shows how hard up the church was for real miracles. The point here is that Tertullian has joined the company of those people who were trying to prove their case by miracles. He's now preaching a speaking their language. The total absence of miracles in the church in the second century called for a remedy, and the remedy was the, exactly the same one they used to make up for the loss of doctrine and authority, substitution. As might be expected, the substitution followed two lines, the esoteric and the vulgar. Left to human providence, religious things, as has often been pointed out, tend to gravitate to two opposite poles. There's always a purely intellectual development on one hand and a vulgar and superstitious one on the other. So among the intellectuals, Quadratus of Athens was the last man in the second century to insist on the literal nature of the miracles of Jesus. Those who followed him, Aristides, Justin, Tatian, Athenagoras, Theophilus, though they could not deny the miracles being among the most fundamental things in Christianity, gave them a more sophisticated appraisal interpretation, and moving as fatally to a Neoplatonic spiritual explanation as a needle to the pole, they took the position illustrated by Irenaeus, who, when asked why the Lord rained down manna on the people in the days of the fathers, but now does so no more, replied, there is also a spiritual manna, and that is the downpour of spiritual wisdom, and that's what we have today. Later on, John Chrysostom, Augustine, and especially St. Ambrose, have a great deal to say about how much superior these mystic and spiritual miracles are to the crass physical articles of the primitive Christians. For a while, as we have told before, the Gnostic tried to fake miracles of the old kind, but that was a strenuous program. A far richer source of substitute material lay to hand in the full-blown cult of miracles that flourished throughout the ancient world. A great deal of research, a vast library has been written on the adoption of local and general cults, legends, liturgies, vestments, rites, and so forth by the Christian church. The local hero cults, the trips to healing shrines, the lovely old legends, the brisk cult of relics, such things were firmly rooted in popular devotion. They were thousands of years old and commanded unshakable devotion of the masses. This is no time to explore this fruitful and colorful field. But out of deference to a top hit song of the day, we might refer our listeners to Franz Joseph Delger's very useful study on the adoption by the church of the ancient and widespread pagan practice of throwing coins into holy fountains in hopes of getting a blessing. Delger's produced many stout volumes, incidentally, on the transition from popular pagan cults to Christian cult practices. <coughs> Such well-known classics as Livy, Dio, Virgil, Pausanias, Hyginus, and so forth provide plenty of descriptions of the kind of popular miracles that were taken over by the Christians. Heavenly visitations and manifestations are common among them. But one thing they all have in common, they have no real message to convey. They have nothing to say. They are essentially just eyewash. The seven sleepers of Ephesus arose from their century-long sleep, praised God, and promptly fell dead again. We talked once about letters from heaven and the tremendous impact they had on medieval society. What was wrong with them? They had nothing to say. The gifts and miracles all go together in the Church of Christ and are taken as matter of course. Where you have the one, you have the other, for they are really but manifestations of the same power, the power that made and sustains the world. We see that miraculous power at work all around us, and the Lord has told us that he is displeased with those who fail to see his hand in all things. That power is operated directly through the priesthood. 
And where you have the priesthood, as Tertullian long ago observed, you must necessarily have the powers and miracles that go with it. He that believeth on me, said the Lord to Philip, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. The Lord then continues with the promise of the Holy Ghost, whom the world cannot receive, who will teach the saints all things. These things are not for the world, they are promised to the saints and them alone. And then the greatest of all things is promised, the Holy Ghost. Now it's a significant thing that the Christian world loudly proclaims the gift of the Holy Ghost, but just as loudly denies the presence of any of the lesser gifts that accompany it. If one has the Holy Ghost, the other things are there as a matter of course. It doesn't supplant them. Here it's explicitly promised along with them. To deny literal miracles as one part of the Christian world does today, or to look for faith in rare theatrical stunning and sensational displays in a word to seek after signs as the rest do, is to miss the whole point of miracles. They belong to the church. They are a useful, natural, necessary part of it. They are not something to be handled in the abstract with the precious affectations of the academicians, nor are they something to be spread abroad in hushed and excited whispers or written up in popular magazines for their publicity value. Since we say we know God can do these things, it's a poor demonstration of faith when he actually does them to act as if he were a magician trying to make our eyes pop out. Where you find the true church, there you will find true prophets, and where you find the priesthood in all its authority, and where you have that, all the signs and wonders will follow as a matter of course.